All right, before we jump into it this morning, I want to take a little state of the union. I want to see where everybody's at this morning. We're 72 hours away from Christmas, and I just want to know who's completely ready for Christmas. By a show of hands, who has completed everything on their Christmas to-do list? Okay. Wow. A lot of y'all. All right. Okay. And then let's go to the other side. Who still has work to do? All right. There we go. These are my people. These people with their hands raised right now. These are my people. Right? When Christmas is a few days away, you know, most of us fall into two categories. We're either prepared for it and we're just delighting in the season and we're looking forward to the big day, or we're unprepared for it. And we're, we're still excited, but there's a little bit of a sense of panic as Christmas is coming up on us quickly. You know, in this room, there are people who have decorated every corner, purchased every gift, wrapped every box, and planned every meal. And there are people who will be checking their phones tomorrow evening to see what time Walmart closes on Christmas Eve, who will be rushing over to Publix to buy one more thing on the grocery list, who will be out on, on Christmas Eve rubbing elbows with other slackers as they check the final few things off their list. Now, fortunately for me, I married Lacey. And Lacey's 100% part of that first group. You know, she starts feeling the Christmas spirit at approximately 12.01 a.m. on November 1st. You know, she doesn't bypass Thanksgiving completely, but she loves Christmas. She started making Amazon wish lists for the kids back in the summer. She started coordinating Christmas plans with our families at the start of the fall. She purchased presents in November. She started decorating our house Thanksgiving week. She's organized, she is prepared, she is our, our family Christmas point person, which is great, because I'm the opposite. I, I fall into the second group. You know, I can't offer guarantees about many things in life, but I can almost guarantee you that I will be somewhere on Christmas Eve fighting the crowds to find a final item or two. There's a 95% chance that this will happen. There's a high probability. The only saving grace for me will be if Lacey has already thought about the thing that I will certainly forget. And so the point is, some of us work ahead of Christmas and others work right up to Christmas. But either way, we all look forward to it. Either way, we all get wrapped up in the season. You know, on Thursday, I had my first real burst of Christmas spirit. It started in the morning on the way to taking Parker to school at Westside, I was feeding off her energy a little bit. Now, she was just buzzing in the back seat. She was bouncing in the back seat with excitement. She had one day left before a long Christmas break. She was wearing pajamas to school, and she knew that for a large portion of her class time on Thursday, they were going to be watching the Polar Express. So she was excited, and I was getting excited with her. My excitement went to another level when I went to Chandler's Christmas program. Listen, when you watch 30 minutes of 50 or 60, two, three, four-year-olds singing Christmas carols, you can't help but get excited. I could have done without Chandler picking her nose for two stanzas of We Wish You a Merry Christmas, but as a parent, you have to take the bad with the good. And then my excitement reached another level after school. When Parker and Chandler got home, I wanted to, wanted to keep the party going. I wanted to keep the good times rolling. So I suggested amending our evening plans in favor of 
Christmas shopping and, and Chick-fil-A. And I found out later on that my plans were aligning, aligning with God's plans when I discovered in the Chick-fil-A drive through for the first time that kids' meals are free with the purchase of an adult combo on Thursday. It was a clear sign that God's hand was on us. It was a true Christmas miracle. And so let me set the scene for you. I'm, I'm driving around Valdosta with my four favorite people, and we're looking at Christmas lights, and I was just reaching peak Christmas spirit. We had the last few gifts in the trunk. We had Chick-fil-A in our stomachs, and we had Christmas songs playing on the radio. And so my anticipation for the season, my anticipation for the birth of my Savior, my affection for Jesus was, was stirring inside of me. And I was living in this perfect Christmas moment. And then Parker spoke up from the back seat. And she said, Daddy, did you hear that commercial? They're having hot chocolate with Santa at that place. We should go. A few minutes later, she spoke up again. Mom, Valdosta has ice skating. Can we please go? And then again, I didn't know Wild Adventures had a winter wonderland. And so in this seemingly perfect Christmas moment, it was becoming abundantly clear that Parker and I were having completely different Christmas experiences. As we listened to the radio, she was engaging with the commercials, and I was engaging with the carols. She was listening to the ads, and her mind was, was spinning about Santa Claus and winter wonderlands and presents and lights and garland and activities and family gatherings. And I was listening to the music, and my mind was spinning as I thought about the baby in the manger, as I thought about the mercy and grace of God, as I thought about the sacrifice from that baby who would become a man on a cross. Now obviously, Parker's only five years old, and she has plenty of time to round out her understanding of Christmas, but in this moment it was striking to consider our vastly different experiences listening to the same radio station. It was a subtle reminder of how easily other things can consume our attention during the Christmas season. How easily we can become overwhelmed with tasks and lists and shopping sprees and parties. How easily we can overlook the reason for the season. How easily we can get wrapped up in other things and forget that above all else, Christmas is a call to worship. As A.W. Tozer wrote, Jesus was born a virgin, suffered under Pilate, died on the cross, and rose from the grave to make worshipers out of rebels. See, we can't separate the cradle from the cross. Christmas is a reminder of God's faithfulness, and Christmas is a reminder for us to worship Him for His faithfulness. And so this morning, we're going to take a break from our our journey through the Gospel of John, and we're going to be looking at a familiar story in Matthew chapter 2. You know, we actually won't return to the Gospel of John until February 9th. Next week, we're going to work through the entire book of Jonah. Uh, before you freak out, it's only four chapters, and we're going to take a, a look from 10,000 feet. We're going to be raking leaves, not, not digging trenches, so we won't be here all afternoon, so please come for that. And then in January and early February, we're going to talk about our 
our vision for, for 2020 and beyond. But this morning we're in Matthew chapter 2, and in his gospel, Matthew proclaims Jesus as the Messiah King who came to fulfill the Old Testament prophecy. He establishes his view of Jesus in the opening chapters. In chapter 1, his messianic claims about Jesus are confirmed by two facts related to his birth. First, he establishes that Jesus was an earthly king, that his right to the throne is clearly shown in the genealogy which connects him to David, that Jesus is part of a royal lineage, that he is from the house of David. And second, he establishes that Jesus was a heavenly son by talking about the divine nature of of his birth, the divine miracle of the virgin birth, which was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He was the Son of God. He was the one foretold in Isaiah 7, 14, where the prophet proclaims, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And so those are the big ideas of Matthew chapter 1. As we turn our attention to Matthew chapter 2, we see the messianic claims about Jesus are further confirmed by this response surrounding his birth. And so let's pick up the narrative in verse 1. Matthew writes, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So Matthew doesn't record the visit from the shepherds. Instead, he records a visit from a group of foreigners, a group of, of wise men. And, and we're not provided with a lot of background information about the wise men. They're sort of one-hit wonders in the biblical canon. You know, in Scripture, we'll occasionally come across a, a person or a group of people that we only see one time and we never see again. One example of this would be Ananias in Acts 9, who was commissioned by God to go help carry out the final stages of Paul's conversion. Another would be the, the thief on the cross in Luke 23 who rebukes the other criminal for falling out, calling out Jesus and then says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus tells him, today you will be with me in paradise. And so both these men were, were one and done in Scripture. We only see them in that one place, that one moment in time. And we see the same thing with the wise men. They pop up in Matthew 2. And then we never see them again. And so our only source of background information for them is in these first two verses. But from our limited information, there are a few things we can learn. There are a few things we can, we can glean about these men. So let's talk about what we don't know and what we know. First, what we don't know. We don't know their number. You know, Commonly, we assume there were three in their traveling party. When we organize a Christmas pageant, or we set up a nativity scene, or we sing a Christmas carol, we're usually doing it around the idea of there being three wise men, but we don't know that for sure. You know, Some of our, our traditions, some of our legends, some of our carols about Christmas are based on speculation. You know, another example of this is a line in a way in a manger. This is a small one, but it's always bugged me a little bit. There's a line that says, The cattle are lowing, the poor baby waits, but little Lord Jesus no crying he makes. I don't buy it for a second. You know, I have an 11 month old in my house and when I come home after he's already asleep some nights, I have to take off my shoes to tiptoe by his room in hopes that he won't wake up 
and cry for 45 minutes. So I can't fathom the idea of a newborn baby waking up beside a cow and these other farm animals and offering no reaction. I think a more accurate rendering would be, but little Lord Jesus, lots of crying he makes. But, but the point here, that's a sidebar. The point here is that we don't know a specific number. We know they brought three gifts. We don't know how many people were in their traveling party. It could have been three, but it could have been five, seven, ten, twenty. We can't say for sure. We don't know their number. Also, we don't know their names. There are legends and stories about their backgrounds. Some tradition says that they were Ethiopian, Indian, and Greek. Other traditions say that their names were Caspar, Balazar, and Melchior. And they were eventually baptized by Thomas. So we have these stories, but again, none of it's in Scripture, so we can't be sure. So we don't know their number, and we don't know their names. But in verses 1 and 2, we do get a few details about them. Let's cover what we do know. First, we know their, their setting. Matthew says they came from the east. Now, clearly, from the east is, is really vague, because it could be anywhere to the right of Israel on a map. We could be talking about Persia, Egypt, the Arabian Desert, any number of locations. The most common guess is that they came from Babylon. The theory here would be that this is where the Israelites were once exiled, and so some of their, their traditions, some of their scrolls may have been left behind, some of their teaching about the Messiah may have rubbed off on Babylonian culture. And so maybe these wise men had a, a scroll that had been maintained, or they remembered the oral traditions, the stories of this Messiah who would come in Israel, and they saw the star and they went west. And so we can't narrow it down, but we know their, their general Location. They were from east of Israel. Second, we know their significance. We can safely assume these wise men were, were high-ranking officials. These were men of, of power and influence. They weren't isolated stargazers. They weren't two-bit magicians. They were prominent religious and political figures. And there's two reasons that we can say that. First, they brought expensive gifts. I'm not sure what the fair market value would be of frankincense and myrrh, but I can tell you that at this point in time, commoners would have had a hard time getting their hands on these three things. You know, frankincense, myrrh, and gold would not be something that you could get your hands on very easily. It would have been difficult for an average person to acquire. And also, they brought an impressive caravan. Matthew records when they came into Israel, they caused a stir. That people were talking about them. People were cutting their eyes at them. There were a lot of rumors going around as they came into town. And the people were so stirred up that these wise men eventually got an audience from the king. You know, king Herod brought them in to, to talk to them, to inquire about why they were visiting Jerusalem and what they were looking for. And Herod, we'll talk about him a little more in a minute, but Herod's not a guy that would waste his own time. And so the fact that they were given a royal audience speaks to their power and influence. So we know their significance. And finally, we know their schedule. So it probably would have been better here to say we know their agenda or we know their 
their purpose, but I was on a roll with the alliteration, so I went with, with schedule. It's not the best word, but just, just go along with it. So we know a little bit about when they came and a lot about, a lot about why they came. First, the when. They came after the birth of Jesus, but they didn't show up immediately. They weren't there in the manger. If you look down at verse 11, it says when they do show up, it says, in going into the house, they saw the child. There's two important things to note here. First, they went into the house, not the manger, not the inn. And second, they saw the child, not the baby. Also in verse 16, when Herod is attempting to destroy the new king of the Jews, he orders that all children under two years old are to be put to death. All children under two years old. So Herod is trying to eradicate Jesus and he kills every child that's under two years old. So we know some time has passed. Our best guesses here say that when the wise men show up, Jesus may be a year old, maybe as old as, as 18 months when they finally arrived. So that's, that's the when, and, and we also know the why. They came to worship the king of the Jews. They're explicitly clear about this. They come to Herod, who was the king of the Jews, according to the Roman government, and they tell him that they're there to worship the king of the Jews. They ask him a question that should guide and govern our lives. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They were looking for Jesus. They were looking for a child. They had traveled many miles to worship him. So in verses 1 and 2, we see how the wise men responded to the birth of Jesus. They worshiped him. And a little bit later in our text, we'll see when they arrive, we'll get some specific details about the nature of their worship. But before we get there, in verses 3 through 8, we see the other side of the spectrum. Verses 1 and 2 show us how wise men respond to the birth of Jesus. And verses 3 through 8 show us how foolish men respond to the birth of Jesus. Let's pick back up in verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. He told, they told him, in Jerusalem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a rule, ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And, they, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So in verses 3 through 8, we're reminded many resist King Jesus. Through the words and actions of King Herod and the Jewish leaders, we see two familiar reactions to Jesus. Fear and apathy. The king was threatened by Jesus and the religious establishment was indifferent towards Jesus. And their responses to the birth of the Messiah 
are an important case study for us because the spirit of Herod and the spirit of the religious leaders is alive and well in our current context. And so let's take a look at their reactions one at a time. So first, Herod was threatened by Jesus. Verse 3 says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. A little background on Herod. In 40 B.C., so about 40 years before Jesus was born, the Roman Senate appointed Herod king of Israel, the king of the Jews. He was enthroned by military force. He was essentially a puppet for the Roman establishment. He did their bidding amongst the Jewish people. And by all accounts, he was a bloodthirsty tyrant. He clung to his authority with a white-knuckle grip. He would destroy anyone who might threaten his power. He even killed his wife, his sons, his brothers to ensure they wouldn't seize his position. Augustus Caesar reportedly said of Herod that it would be better to be his dog than his son. He was a treacherous ruler. And naturally, a ruler like Herod was not overjoyed at the news of a newborn king. Verse 3 says he was troubled. He was, he was terrified. He was insecure. He was agitated. He was uncomfortable. And he was likely most threatened by two simple words that came off the lips of the wise men. Born king. They said Jesus was born king. He wasn't elected king. He wasn't appointed king. He wasn't coming to take the throne by force. He was born king. He wasn't a future king. He was a present king. As Isaiah foretold, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. If you skip down to verse 7, after Herod has gathered some information from the chief priests and the scribes, he called the wise men back. Verse 7 says, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. So he's gathering all his information. He's starting to, to put his plot, put his scheme together. And then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So Herod portrayed kindness, but he intended murder. It becomes clear later in the chapter that he wanted Jesus dead, that he was plotting against him, that he was working towards his destruction. And I, I want to I want to camp out here for a second because listen, if, if you're here today and, and you've braved the rain and the cold to to join us, and, and you've set aside time during this busy season to come gather with us and worship, you may struggle to see yourself in this part of the story. You may struggle to see where there's any parallel or correlation between yourself and Herod. Because certainly you aren't threatened by the birth of Jesus. Certainly you aren't troubled by the birth of Jesus. But a quick word of, of caution to you. You may not be threatened or troubled by the baby in the manger, but you could be threatened or troubled by the king on the throne. 
Listen, it's easy to trust in Jesus as your Savior. But it is hard to submit to Him as your Lord. It's easy to take those first steps in faith. It's hard to take those continuing steps in obedience. Now the journey of sanctification requires daily realignment. It requires a a daily surrender of your will. It requires you praying over and over again, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And when you pray these words consistently, you may very well be threatened by what God calls you to do. You may very well be troubled by what God calls you to give up. You may discover that your heart aligns with Herod's more than you're willing to admit. So King Herod was threatened by Jesus. Second, the religious establishment was indifferent towards Jesus. Verse 4, In assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So in response to the inquiry from the wise men, King Herod organized a, a national convention of the religious scholars. He called all the chief priests and scribes together for a decision, for a ruling. The chief priests were supposed to be the authority on worship, but mostly they were corrupt, religiously oriented politicians. The the scribes were primarily Pharisees, and they were supposed to be the authority on the law, but they were mostly self-righteous hypocrites. And so Herod gathers all these men together and And he asked them, where is the king supposed to come from? According to the scriptures, where should the Messiah be born? And I want you to notice that interestingly, they don't need to go look it up. They don't need to have a discussion about it. They don't say, does anyone have a scroll handy? Can we consult the scriptures, King Herod? And and let us get back to you in a couple of days. No, they know the answer. They quickly say back to Herod, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and they quote Micah 5, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And this Old Testament prophecy is of course fulfilled by Jesus. Now, this is why we can trust the the message of the Bible. Skeptics will often claim that Jesus Christ manipulated certain events in his life so that he would line up with prophecy. And there are some places where they they, they have an argument. There are some places where where you could understand how this could be the case. You know, a great example of this would be John chapter 2. We were there a few months back and when Jesus cleanses the temple, you, you remember that his disciples recognized that he had zeal for his father's house. They recognized that because that was Old Testament prophecy that spoke of the future Messiah, that the future Messiah would have zeal for his father's house. And so theoretically, Christ could have been familiar with that Old Testament prophecy and seen that the Messiah was supposed to have zeal for his father's house 
And he could have let that drive him to go in and flip over a bunch of tables and cause a ruckus. So there are certain places where this makes sense, but this is not one of those places. This is not one of those situations. How could Jesus possibly orchestrate the place of his birth? How could Jesus bring in line a 700-year-old prophecy from inside his mother's womb? There's no explaining that connection away. The only explanation is that he was the Messiah. So back to the religious leaders. They knew exactly where the Messiah would be born. But when the wise men leave and they set out to find the child, they don't go with them. Don't miss this. They understood the truth, but they weren't moved by it. They weren't curious. They weren't interested. They weren't moved. They did nothing. Their apathy towards Jesus serves as a reminder for us that biblical knowledge does not produce salvation. As Mark Dever has, has warned, if you know all about good theology, but it doesn't affect how you act, you're not saved. It's possible for head knowledge to never translate to heart change. It's possible for what's in your head to never make the 20-inch journey to your heart. It's possible to know a great deal about the Bible and still be lost. And as the Gospel of Matthew progresses, we see the same thing that we're seeing in the Gospel of John, that their indifference towards Jesus starts to morph into hostility towards Jesus, to anger towards Jesus, to murderous threats towards Jesus. And then eventually, a coup and an arrest and a crucifixion. But for now, they're just indifferent. For now, they're just unmoved. For now, their vast knowledge of the Scriptures does little to draw their hearts towards the One from the Scriptures. And so Herod was, was threatened by Jesus and plotted against Him. And the religious establishment was indifferent towards Jesus and largely ignored Him. But the wise men searched for Jesus and worshipped Him. Verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. In verses 9-12, through 12, we see few worship King Jesus. Now, through the example of these wise men, we're provided with a, a proper reaction to the birth of Jesus. Worship. So let's look at four characteristics of their worship. Number one, they worshipped joyfully. So apparently the star that had 
been leading their path towards Jesus and taking them into Jerusalem had disappeared. But after their meeting with Herod, this star appears in the sky once again and leads them right to Jesus. It comes to rest over the home where Jesus and his family are staying. And I love that Matthew records that when they saw the star back in the sky, that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They experienced quadruple joy. They experienced joy to the fourth power. Understand, it would have been one thing to say they rejoiced. It would have been more to say they rejoiced with joy. It would have been even more to say they rejoiced with great joy. And it was even more to say they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. This wasn't a, a passive joy or a reserved joy or a nonchalant joy. This wasn't a joy over their power and, and their possessions. This wasn't a joy over what Jesus may do for them. This was the joy of men who had found their Savior. This was a joy of men who had found their Messiah. I know for some of you this Christmas season hasn't been marked with joy. I know for some of you this Christmas season has been marked with a, a host of, of other emotions. Maybe this, this Christmas you're experiencing shifting traditions in your family. Maybe some of your grandchildren and children won't be making it to see you this year. Maybe you've just been overwhelmed by busyness. Maybe it's just been one thing after another and you haven't had a chance to stop and, and reflect on the true meaning of this season. Maybe you're battling sickness. Maybe your spouse, maybe one of your children is battling disease. Maybe you're preparing to experience your first Christmas without someone who is near and dear to your heart. In certain situations, the circumstances of life can certainly put a damper on the season. It can certainly make it difficult for us to find the joy in Christmas. But church, we must fight for our joy. We must fight for our joy. We can't allow anything or anyone to rob us of our joy over the baby in a manger. Our only response to the birth of Jesus should be incessant joy. Think about it this way. Imagine you inherited a hundred million dollars from an uncle who you'd never met. And on the way to pick up the check, your car gets a flat tire. And when you step out of the car, your engine starts smoking. And as you start to call AAA, your car just explodes and lights on fire. In this moment, as you're standing on the side of the interstate with your car engulfed in flames, Do you complain and grumble to the Lord? Do you, you shake your fist at God? Do you call all your friends and tell them how horrible your plight is? 
or do you just wash your hands of the car and call an Uber and head to your next destination? I'm going to tell you, if I'm in that situation, I won't even call the Uber. I'm just going to skip the rest of the way. I will, I will skip to my destination. I will pick up the check. I will pay off my house note, and I will pay off the church note. I can confidently tell you I wouldn't be phased by losing my car. I wouldn't be phased by a temporary setback because I would be overjoyed by the blessing that's in my near future. And so let me encourage you that wherever you are this Christmas, whether you're abounding in joy or you're drowning in sorrow, your current situation pales in comparison to your future inheritance in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, worship joyfully. If you're in Christ, worship joyfully no matter your circumstances, no matter your situation. Number two, they worshiped reverently. According to H.B. Charles Jr., there are three ways we can view Christmas. We can view it cynically, graciously, or reverently. If you view Christmas cynically, you'll only see it as a platform for spending and making money. If you view Christmas graciously, you'll, you'll immerse yourself with the spirit of the season. You'll scream Merry Christmas from the mountaintops. You'll give glad tidings to every person that you encounter. But you can view Christmas cynically or graciously apart from Jesus. You can hate Christmas or love Christmas apart from Jesus. You don't have to be spiritual to view Christmas cynically or graciously, but you do have to be spiritual to view Christmas reverently. Only true worshipers view Christmas reverently. Only those who worship God in spirit and in truth can see Christmas as about the King of the Jews. This was the outlook of the wise men. Notice in verse 11 that when they come into the house and they see the child with his mother, their first reaction is to fall down and worship him. Their attention was on the child before his mother. Their fa his father wasn't even mentioned at all. Because they didn't come to pay their respects to a royal family. They came to worship a king. And when they saw Jesus, when they saw him for the first time, they fell on their faces and they worshipped him. By falling on the ground, they were saying, you are high and we are low. By falling on the ground, they said, you have great dignity. You have great honor. And we are lowly by comparison. We are nothing. We are not worthy to be in your presence. When they saw the child, they're response was the proper response they worshiped him reverently number three they worship jesus sacrificially 
after offering their adoration, they offered their possessions. Verse 11 continues, Then opening their treasures, they offered Him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. The gold emphasized His royalty. It was a gift worthy of kings. The frankincense emphasized His deity. It was presented to priests to offer to God during sacrificial worship. When it was burned, it symbolized the offering of worship heading towards the heavens as a sweet aroma to God. And the myrrh emphasized his humanity. It was easily the most mysterious gift of all because it was generally used for preparing a dead body for burial. It was kind of a weird gift for a toddler, but it was a look into his future. It was a reminder that the baby on the, in the manger would become the man on the cross. It was a reminder that Jesus was born to die. It was a reminder that there's no joy in Christmas without Good Friday. And so when we consider our Savior, when we consider what Christ has done for us, we should be driven towards generosity. Like simply, when we are overwhelmed with God's grace, we're more willing to sacrifice for God's plan. We're more willing to worship sacrificially. We're more willing to, to give up our time. We're more willing to part with our resources. We're more willing to give our money back to God in hopes that all of this will see His kingdom move forward in hopes that all this will see people believe in His gospel and see lives change forever through the the preaching and teaching of His Word. They worship sacrificially. Finally, number four, they worshiped obediently. The story ends with verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Herod commanded the wise men to come back to see him on their way home. He told him to, to come back and, and tell them where the baby was tell him where the baby was so that he himself could go and, and worship him. But we know Herod had no intentions of, of worshiping the child. That Herod's intentions were to assassinate the child. And while the wise men were certainly not aware of his evil intentions, God was. And God warned them, do not return. To Herod. And they obeyed his warning. They took another route home. It would have been easier for them to make a U-turn. It would have been easier for them to, to retrace their steps. It would have been easier for them to take a familiar path back to their homeland. But they heeded the Lord's warning. They were obedient to the Lord's warning. Because worship should always lead to obedience. As Richard Foster put it, if worship does not propel us to greater obedience, it has not been worship. To stand before the Holy One of Eternity is to change. When we worship the King, we should go home a different way. When we worship the King, we should go home 
changed. Since it's Christmas, let's let's tie a, a, a giant bow on this. In Matthew 2, through the example of the wise men, we see how we should respond in this season. That Christmas should drive us to worship. That we should worship our Savior joyfully. We should worship our Savior reverently. We should worship our Savior sacrificially. And we should worship our Savior obediently. We see in in Matthew 2, what's abundantly clear throughout the rest of His Gospel, that God's intentions for us are to worship the Son. That's God's aim for us in this season and in every season is to worship the Son. Worshiping the Son is His will for us. Worshiping the Son is His will for every person in our homes, in our friend groups, in our neighborhoods, and in our offices. Worshiping the Son is His will for every nation. Worshiping the Son is the reason for the season. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that in this Christmas season where we can so easily get off track with so many distractions, we thank You for this reminder of the true reason for the season in in Matthew chapter 2. Lord, one of the things I love about Matthew's Gospel As I read this week, one commentator said that his gospel begins with a come and see pattern and it ends with a go and tell pattern. That it begins with a group of wise men who come and see their Savior. And it ends with a group of disciples who go and tell about their Savior. And so Father, this morning... In those words, we find an invitation and a commission to every person under the sound of my voice. For those who aren't in Christ, may they hear that you're inviting them to come and see. For those who are in Christ, may they hear that you're you're urging them to go and tell. Lord, as we enter into a time of of response. I pray you would make abundantly clear which one of those two categories we fit into. And you would motivate our hearts to action this Christmas. Lord, we thank you so much for the baby in the manger who became the man on the cross. Through His work, we have hope. Through His work, we have peace. Through His work, we have joy. So we thank You for His sufficient work. 
We pray all these things in his name. Amen.